Father, it's good to have fellowship one with the other and to recognize that we have this, this fellowship because of the life of Christ that we each experience. We thank you for the Spirit of God who dwells within us. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that you give us each day to know you, to love you, to serve you. And even though, Father, we recognize that we so often fail you, we have that constant uh, promise of your word that you, are, you never leave us nor desert us in any circumstance, but you love us, you forgive us, you're always there to meet us in, at the point of our need and help us, Lord, to be ever mindful of our need to stand before you in the, uh, in the cleansed spirit that comes through our repentance, our confession of our sin, and the washing of the blood of Christ. We're so grateful for that cleansing. Now, Father, we ask that our hearts will be attuned to you today as you speak to us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. The question has been asked in sort of a general way of review that I'll just speak to briefly this morning. The question has been asked, why does God in the Word record uh, events that seem to be quite shameful, that seem to be events that maybe didn't need to be recorded? And the case in point that was brought out was the uh, case of Noah after the flood when he had imbibed of the fruit of the vine and was uh, it rendered himself... Uh, drunk and uh, was lying in his tent stark naked and that whole account uh, that developed there. Now obviously none of us can speak as if we were uh, the very uh, voice of God himself, but it would seem that as we look at passages like that passage and others in scripture, many of which we've already uh, touched upon, others we will yet touch upon. Uh, God shows the human race in, with all of its warts and moles. And God shows us at our worst as well as at our best. He, he shows us, uh, he shows the, the men and women of God in that place where they are, as Moses was, standing on the top of Mount Sinai, receiving the very word of God in the presence of God. And then he shows men such as David looking over the top of the parapet, lusting after Bathsheba. Here is the one who is the apple of God's eye, the, the one that uh, is God's chosen instrument, and, and yet he is acting in a manner that is just as disgusting as all the trash we're hearing about on radio and television, reading in the paper uh, going on right now in Hollywood. God is very practical. God is not about to gloss over anything. He wants us to recognize the fact that we are a fallen people. It's interesting that if you've studied much of American history, and of course we have an expert here in our midst with uh, Dr. Grant, but uh, if you go back to the 19th century transcendentalists, men like uh, Emerson and Thoreau and others, uh, they, all they did was emphasize the goodness of man and how wonderful mankind really was and how mankind was escalating upward. The scripture teaches us very much the opposite. Uh, 
The scripture teaches us that mankind is depraved. And there was a strong movement uh, against that in our own history, and, and transcendentalism was a part of that. And, of course, it, it grew into what we call liberal theology, or at least that was an aspect of liberal theology that developed in the late 19th and even into the 20th century, that, that mankind is really basically good, and all you have to do is put him in a good environment, and, and man will do wonderful things. The scripture teaches us that man in any environment is evil, that we are a depraved and downtrodden race, and we're absolutely in need of the grace of God. And I think that that radiates from the event that uh, we read about in the third chapter of Genesis in the garden all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. The teaching that we are desperately in need of God's cleansing, His forgiveness, His mercy, and that without Him there is no hope. Mankind is not going to achieve God's blessing on his own. Noah was the great man of God who alone... Scripture says he alone. It doesn't say that his wife or his three sons or his three daughters-in-law, any of those are not referred to as having found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but Noah alone is said to have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And because of him, God preserved the other seven. And yet this event that seems so non-typical of someone who had experienced so much at the hand of God takes place. And it, it, it turns, you know, it just reveals the utter vileness of mankind, even after God has cleansed the earth, so to speak, of a despicable human race and wiped out everyone except the eight. The infection of sin continues. And so we see that in this event involving Noah. And God wants us to know even these disgusting details. Because if you're really honest, if I'm really honest with myself, I will recognize that I am capable of such disgusting activity too. Without the grace of God, we are all capable of the most vile sin. Maybe not by actual action, but at least by thought. By, by vicarious activity. I mean, we can sit and watch television and watch some gross stuff happening. And you know, there's, there's kind of a, a magnetism there if we allow this to happen. A vicarious putting of ourselves in that event that we might see depicted there. So I think the most important thing that this, that kind of revelation teaches us that we, is, we need to be honest before God. Except for the blood of Christ which has saved us from our sin, we are capable of that, of the most vile thing that has ever happened in human race. And we see this vileness, of course, spreading like a plague through America today the so-called nation whose uh, ancestors were so godly and committed to, uh, at least to the concept of the God of the Bible, if not personally to him, uh, this nation has gone literally down the tubes and was headed rapidly that way. And I think the only thing that's preserving our nation right now is the fact that there are within this country tens of millions of true believers. The salt is still here. The salt is not yet totally gone. And thus, the whole thing hasn't turned to rotten meat yet. But uh, we'll have to keep praying that it will not continue in that direction. That God will send a great revival. And that's one of the wonderful things about American history is this, this cyclical revival that we can read about that has occurred in our history and has impacted the nation profoundly. We desperately need another such one today. So as you 
read through the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think we have a very practical book here, a book that shows us who we are, uh, what we need, who God is, what he will do, and uh, he does not gloss anything over. And that's uh, my, the, the, the primary understanding I have, at least, of events like that one concer- uh, involving Noah and others. Well, I don't know if that's helpful, but let's move on to the 27th chapter of Genesis. And I'd like for us to begin reading with verse 30. We read this passage last time and began to talk about it a little bit. Beginning at verse 30 and moving through verse 40. Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. And Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was, who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. He said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him your master, and all his relatives I have given to him as servants. And with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? And Esau said to his father, Do you have only one little bitty blessing? Doesn't say that in so many words, but I think that's what he's implying here, my father. Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted lifted his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, away from the dew of the heaven from above. And by your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. In an emotionally charged passage. I mean, if you could just Put yourself in Isaac's sandals and in Esau's sandals. I mean, we're talking about electricity here. Uh, this, this is a tremendously powerful passage. And it reveals to us many things, not the least of which is that some things in life are irrevocable. Apparently, Isaac believed that the spoken blessing that he gave to Jacob, although given in deceit, that is, Jacob had deceived him, that it carried divine power, it was not retractable, it was irrevocable. This he must have believed. God was the only witness. 
Jacob was the only ears who heard the blessing. Were the only ears. His ears were the only ears. <laughs> so why couldn't Isaac just say, well, this was extracted from me under false pretenses. Therefore, I am simply going to cancel it out as if it never happened. And I'm going to reissue the blessing to Esau. We would look at that and we'd say, why not? The same reason that Esau could sell to Jacob his birthright, and that too was irrevocable. We know that Isaac felt that it was irrevocable because of the statement he makes at the end of verse 33 where he says, yes, he shall be blessed. In other words, he may have received this blessing under false pretenses, but the blessing is his. It's not revocable. It cannot be pulled back and given to another. The statement that Isaac makes in verse 35, where he says, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing, is also true. He did come deceitfully, and the blessing was taken away. But in that verse, I think we can read Isaac's feelings. He says, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. I think at that moment, Isaac has not accepted his responsibility in this at all. He is putting the blame on Jacob alone at this moment. This will change. But at this moment, he's putting the blame on Jacob himself. <coughs> How many of us have been through a circumstance where our immediate response is that dirty guy or you know, that situation, he's to blame, she's to blame. But as time passes and we see the outworking of it, and we become honest with ourselves, we recognize rarely in a circumstance like this is one entirely to blame. Usually the blame is shared. And so it would ultimately be. Esau bemoans his fate, and he does it, first of all, by castigating Jacob. Is he not rightly named Jacob, which means supplanter, he who would come and take another's place? Since he has taken away my birthright and my blessing, I mean, he has doubly supplanted me. Is he not rightly named Jacob? <laughs> he has conveniently for uh, forgotten something, hasn't he? The scripture says he despised his birthright, and that's why he sold it so frivolously to Jacob. If it were something dear to him, would he have sold it to Jacob for a bowl of pottage? Would he have done that? I don't think so. Now it's true, stew can be a very important thing, as we know from the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, right? <laughs> it's really an important thing, but not so important as to sell your birthright in order to obtain a momentary gratification. He had done it of his own free will. Now, can, can we just picture this? Uh, to me, I like to try, if possible, to picture the scene uh, that we have here. Now, I think most of us can picture the tent. You've probably seen pictures or maybe actually been there to the Holy Land to have seen these black Bedouin tents. They still use them today, made out of camel hair, black Bedouin tents that were, uh, they're, they're, some of them are quite large. Oh, shoot, I suppose the interior diameter in some of them is as great as a quarter of this room. And, you know, you kind of picture the uh, situation that would take place inside this particular tent here. 
And can you just see Esau as he comes to his father and he says, have you not reserved a blessing for me, my father? I think he's down on his knees and I think he's blubbering like a baby. Please, a little bitty blessing, something. Do you have it for me? Here's this supposedly strong, self-reliant outdoorsman who can go out and kill the gazelle and bring it back and prepare a savory dish for his father, blubbering like a baby before his father for some teeny little blessing. One of the, one of the powerful teachings that come through Scripture, that comes through Scripture, is that we are not self-reliant people. We may think we're self-reliant, but we cannot, the scripture teaches us, change so much as a slightest amount of our growth, the color of our hair, except artificially. You know, uh, just like the leopard can't change his spots, we can't change these things about our lives. So how dare we make ourselves our own God, which is what Esau, Esau had done. And now he's paying the price. The full meaning of what had happened now was being explained to him by his father. Do you know what it really means, Esau? That I have given this blessing to your brother Jacob? It means that I have made him chief of the clan, and you and everyone else will be his servant. The patriarchal authority was his. Since I've given it all to him and I've blessed him with the, the grain and the new wine, what's left for you? <laughs> what could I give you? Just some pious platitude? Esau wept, pleaded that his father might bless him also. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. So often the author of the Hebrews uses scenarios from the Old Testament to teach the truth. In the 12th chapter of Hebrews, beginning at verse 14, the scripture says, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, and this verse refers to the, the, the uh, story we're reading about here in the 27th chapter of Genesis he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, whether that last phrase finds it, its antecedent in the immediate clause before that, or goes back to the statement, when he desired to inherit the blessing, is not really terribly important. Because the truth holds, whether whether it means though he sought for repentance with tears or that he sought for the blessing with tears, it's, it's still immaterial because his sale of his birthright was irrevocable. Once it had happened, it was through. It was gone. It could not be retrieved. 
Now, the Scripture calls him a godless, immoral person. So what does this repentance mean here? Does it mean that Esau was down on his knees pleading with God and his father to forgive him? I don't think so. Repentance simply means to reverse the situation. Now, we use it in the spiritual sense. It means to reverse the course of our action and to head in the opposite direction the way we were going. In this case, the repentance is that he wants it to go back to the way things were before. He's not pleading with God to forgive him of his evil. He's not becoming a godly man here because never in Scripture is he ever portrayed as a godly or repentant man. He and his ancestor, uh, his descendants are portrayed as godless, Israel-hating people. And as a result, they, they receive the heavy heel of God upon them through history. Esau irrevocably sold his birthright. And God allowed the blessing to go too because God was not going to allow a patriarchal blessing which included spiritual leadership to go upon a godless man. Now, as I mentioned before, God certainly would have used another method than the deceit planned by Re uh, Rebekah and Jacob. But God went with what these had chosen to do and ultimately achieved his purpose. What does Esau receive? He does receive words from his father. But if you'll look at these words in the 27th chapter of Genesis, verses 39 and 40, these are not words of a blessing. Isaac said, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling. <laughs> now, is that a blessing? He had given to the one he thought was Esau, turned out to be Jacob, he said, the, the, the blessing of the new wine and, and the grain will be yours. In other words, all the good things that this life can produce would be yours. He's saying away from that, away from the dew of the heaven from above. In other words, you're going to live in a dry land, buddy. And by your sword you shall live, your brother you shall serve. And it should come about that when you become restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. This is a prophecy. Esau is, is receiving a prophecy from the mouth of his father, Isaac. Now, how did Isaac know this? Well, certainly, it was given to him by God. God spoke through Isaac. And the Old Testament clearly illustrates this because as you read through the Old Testament and you look up the story of Edom, you will find this is exactly what happened. Besides, Hebrews tells us that it, you don't have to turn to it, but I'll just read the verse from Hebrews 11, chapter 20, I mean, verse 20, where it says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. So Esau was blessed in that he was told what the future was going to be, but it wasn't a very exciting prophecy. The fulfillment of the prophecy through Scripture recorded in Scripture is, is quite clear. Esau's descendants were the Edomites, okay? The Edomites lived in a place which Scripture calls Mount Seir, or Edom. Now, Mount Seir, Edom, was located in the region to the southeast of the Dead Sea, in southwestern 
Jordan today. It's a very mountainous area. Some of you have heard of the rose red city of Petra, which was, of course, carved out later on by the Nabataean Arabs, but nevertheless was carved in that same area where the uh, Edomites had their headquarters. It's a very lonely place. Some of you have possibly seen the place without ever having been there. Uh, if you, I don't remember which one it was, but one of the Indiana Jones films. What was it? The Last Crusade. The Last Crusade. Okay. Uh, that was photographed there. You see the SIC, S-I-Q, which is the narrow little place, uh, oh, much narrower than this room, which was the only entrance into this city at, at ground level. And when you opened up, when it opened up into that valley, you remember you saw that uh, big structure that was called the treasury. And anyway, the, the carved buildings there were carved out by the Nabataean Arabs later. But that was the heartland of the uh, Edomites. So they lived in this mountain area, dry, rugged region, little fertile soil. So what did the Edomites do for a living? Well, first of all, they raised flocks as best they could, and then the rest of the time they spent raiding and warring on their neighbors. You know, if you don't have enough, steal it from somebody else, right? Seems to be the common plan. We find it happening here in our society a great deal. So we have the Edomites literally living by the sword. And that's what the prophecy said. You shall live by the sword. And that's how the Edomites lived historically is by the sword. Now remember, who is Isaac? Isaac is the peacemaker. Can you imagine how hard it was for him to give such a prophecy concerning the son he loved most? You're going to live by the sword. The opposite of what Isaac had done through his life. It was probably very hard for him to relay such a prophecy. Now, would Edom live or would Edom survive independently of Israel? Well, for much of history it would. But during the days of David, Edom was conquered by the armies of Israel. And for about 200 years or so, Edom was subject to Israel and then to Judah after the division occurred. Uh, at the death of Solomon between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, you have Edom under the thumb of, of Judah. And so they serve them, either directly as their servants or at least under a general hegemony. Well, that would not last forever. Scripture says in the prophecy that when you grow restless, you will break the yoke of your brother from your neck. And that happened, if you will turn to 2 Kings, chapter 8. This happened in the days of Jehoram in the ninth century. Jehoram, king of Judah, uh, would be the one who would lose control of Edom. Edomites would break free. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. <clears throat> in his days, <clears throat> Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. Then Jehoram crossed over to Zair, and all his chariots with him. And it came about that he rose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, and, or we could say, but, the captain, uh, and the captains of the chariots, but his army fled to their tents. In other words, he, took, he went on the attack against the enemy, but things must not have gone too well because his own army fled back 
to their tents. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. So they finally did break the yoke of Judah. And they lived independently then for a period of several centuries after that time. Now, God allowed this to happen. Now, you know, the question can always be asked, did God do this because he had prophesied that this is the way it would happen? Or did God prophesy this is the way it was going to happen because he knew beforehand? Well, of course, that's probably a silly question. Uh, God knows all things, and yet God brings all things to uh, about as he so chooses. But what does God do for Edom here? God holds the Edomites responsible. He allows them to break free, to become independent, but he holds them responsible for their actions and their attitudes relative to whom? To Judah, to the Israelites. Now, we touched on this just briefly two or three Sundays back. In the 6th century, well, let, me, let me just run a few things by you real quickly here. At the end of the 7th century B.C., uh, Babylon came up against Judah under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar II. And we know now through the studies, archaeological studies and other things that have been made, uh, that there were three separate in, uh, incursions by the Babylonians into Judah. One was about 606. The second was about 596. The third was about 586 B.C. And in each one of those, certain individuals were carried away from Judah off into the lands of Babylon. And uh, some of those carried away were the prophets, uh, Daniel and the prophet Ezekiel, prophet Obadiah. And we know that the prophet Jeremiah also, he wasn't carried off into Babylon, he was carried off into Egypt. But he was taken out of the land at this same time. <clears throat> and so when you read the prophecy of Jeremiah and the prophecy of Ezekiel, and the prophecy of Obadiah, and the prophecy of Daniel, you have to put all of those into the historical perspective of the, late, uh, the early 6th century B.C. and the destruction of Israel, uh, that is, of Judah and Jerusalem, under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar II. As you do that, the prophecies begin to make more sense, and you begin to see the overall picture. We don't know whether Ezekiel... Uh, and Daniel and Jeremiah were actually acquainted with each other in terms of being able to talk to each other like we can here, but certainly they knew of each other. And we have references in Daniel, for example, to Jeremiah, to a writing of Jeremiah, so that we know that there was at least that contact. But uh, these, these individuals tell us much about this particular period of time. And so I have put down there two passages for us to look at briefly from Ezekiel and from Jeremiah. Remembering these are prophets who lived at the time in Ezekiel chapter 25, verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has incurred grievous guilt and avenged themselves upon them, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off man and beast from it, and I will lay, lay it waste from Teman even to Dedan. They will fall by the sword. And I will lay vengeance, my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. Therefore, they will act in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. 
Thus they will know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Now what is it that the Edomites had done? That this prophecy would come out of the exilic prophet Ezekiel. Well, what they had done was to cheer the Babylonians on and to even reap profit for themselves by taking part in the pillaging of the land. And the scripture tells us in Obadiah that they even trapped some of the escaping Jews and killed them. So rather than helping their brother, so to speak, their relatives, uh, they are inflicting greater pain on them. Let's see what Jeremiah had to say about this in the 49th chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah, verses 7 to 10. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is there no longer any wisdom in Teman? Uh, remember, we talked about this before. Teman was one of the sons of Edom, of uh, Esau. And so it was the name of one of the tribes, but it was also the name of a city uh, within the area of, of uh, Edom. And Teman was notable for being a city from which came great sages, uh, great uh, men of wisdom, obviously of worldly wisdom. <laughs> and uh, so he's saying, Is there no longer any wisdom in Teman? Has good counsel been lost to the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Flee away, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the disaster of Esau upon him at the time I punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, they would destroy only until they had enough. But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places. So that he will not be able to conceal himself. His, his offspring has been destroyed along with his relatives and his neighbors, and he is no more. In other words, God wasn't going to stop partway through. I mean, you know, even the grape gatherers leave the, some grapes. Uh, even a thief doesn't take everything, probably. But God was taking it all, absolutely destroying Edom. This is the prophecy given by Ezekiel and by Jeremiah who lived at the time and who knew of Edom's participation. Now, the minor prophet Obadiah, we read some verses from Obadiah last, oh, two, three weeks ago. I'd like to read some other verses from the book of Obadiah. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Obadiah is a little bit hard to find because it's only one chapter long. <laughs> Stuck right in there between two other little short books. So if you have a Bible like one Bible I have at home, it seems like you turn three pages and you've gone half of a testament. <laughs> hard to find some of them. But anyway, Obadiah. Now, Obadiah was, there, there's some question about this, but it seems that most believe, at least of evangelical scholars, that Obadiah lived during this time, about 585 B.C., and therefore he is witness to this uh, tragedy also. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. For battle. 
Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. How you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Well, that sounds like something we just read, doesn't it? <clears throat> oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Timon in order that everyone may be cut off from the mountains of Esau by slaughter. And notice now the next couple, three verses give the specific reasons. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered, at his, entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast. But they did. And other passages tell us they even participated in the pillaging of the land. And so what was God's prophecy concerning this? This is to be the ultimate result of Esau's actions. Because his people would not follow the Lord God. They would walk as Esau had walked. Well, we know what happens, of course, when you study through Scripture, <clears throat> when they follow in the footsteps of Nimrod. And we had the great pagan nations established in, in the Near East, in Mesopotamia and otherwise, and the gods that were created by mankind. All right, let's go back to the 27th chapter and read the next few verses. 27th chapter of Genesis, reading at verse 41. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother. Now when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise. Flee to Haran, to my brother Laban, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides, and he forgets what you did to him. Then I shall send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of both of you in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. These, of course, are um, Esau's wives. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these, from the daughters of the land, 
what good will my life be to me? Gives you a little bit of insight as to something some, of, some may have experienced in reality that it makes a lot of difference who is brought into your family by marriage. And it can be a situation that makes life seemingly not worth a whole lot anymore if it's a bad situation. And that, of course, is what they see here uh, with Esau. Scripture here tells us that Esau bore a grudge against Jacob. Now, that word grudge can be viewed differently. We need to understand it here that refers to deep, deep hatred and animosity. I mean, we're not talking about a little wrath for the moment or a kind of a grudge that'll rub off in a few days, irregardless of what Rebecca was thinking here. This was a deep, deep set hatred that would go on from generation to generation to the ultimate destruction of Edom. The prophet Amos castigates Edom because he says he maintained his fury forever against Judah. Esau's wonderful, carefree life is now clouded because he's trying to plan how he's going to get back at his brother. Sin has terrible repercussions. And, and this man's life now is, is just constantly besieged by this desire to do something to his brother. And it's going to ruin his own life. Not that his life was so great to start with, but I guess he thought it was wonderful. He needs revenge. Revenge is a, is a destructive canker. It'll eat away inside of people. And we've all read stories of, of people whose desire for re revenge was so great it destroyed them. And that's why, you know, why does the Lord say, vengeance is mine, I will repay? Why does he say that? Because he doesn't want us to get the satisfaction of smacking them, you know? He doesn't want us to get the satisfaction of seeing them hurt. No, because God knows what vengeance will do to us. Vengeance will tear us apart. It doesn't satisfy. God wants to take that burden off our shoulders. He will do it because he can do it so much more perfectly anyway. I mean, we've all read the passage that teaches us that if we... Uh, uh, if, our enemy, if our enemy is hungry or thirsty, give him something to food, give him something to drink, because if you do that, coals of fire will be heaped on his head. And, you know, that might be the only reason we want to do it, but <laughs> what does that really mean? Well, God is saving us from those coals burning inside us and destroying us. And God knows how to really make it work in another person's life. And, of course, ultimately, God's purpose is redemption. He wants to redeem all men and women. That's his desire, anyway. Why does Esau not instantly take his brother out behind the tent and thrash him? Well, I think there are many reasons. One of the reasons we talked about before, I, I don't think Esau could have taken Jacob out behind the tent and just thrashed him. I think Jacob could have given him a, a lick or two. And uh, I noted the reason why uh, I think that uh, before. And we'll see that as we move along into the 28th chapter. But, no, it's later than the 28th chapter, several chapters later. But anyway, 
He was going to take him by surprise, certainly. He was going to look just, just like uh, when Cain took uh, Abel out in the field. I, you know, Abel wasn't expecting to, for his brother to knock his block off. Uh, and I think Cain just, you know, when Abel turned his back, I think he did his dastardly deed. And I think that is exactly what Esau is planning inside his heart. Somehow I'm going to bushwhack my brother. Like Nimrod, who was the mighty hunter, Esau was a proud man. And the very thought of having to be a servant to his brother, can you imagine? He couldn't just, he, he just couldn't conceive of that. I am not going to serve Jacob. I'll kill him first. This is his thought. Why does he wait? Well, he waits primarily because, as the scripture teaches us here, his the, the days of mourning for his father are near. He's going to wait till his father's dead. Why does he want to wait till his father's dead? Well, he's not so stupid as to realize that his father could put a curse on him. Remember, that was Jacob's fear when he went in to try to deceive his father Isaac. He was fearful that he would not only not receive a blessing if he was discovered, but he would be cursed. Now Esau, recognizing the same, he doesn't want to be cursed by his father, so he's going to wait till his father's dead, and then he's going to do his brother in. Not that he's particularly afraid, uh, afraid of God here, it would seem, but he's afraid of a curse. So he was going to wait. Now, had he any idea that his father would live another third to half a century? <laughs> you know, I think at this moment he might have said, forget it, I'm going to get this dude now especially if he knew that Jacob was going to flee and be out of his reach. But he didn't know those things, and God wasn't about to tell him. And so he waits, and of course he waits until his brother's gone, and, and his father just hangs on and hangs on and hangs on. And uh, certainly this drove the hatred deeper and deeper into the pit of the soul of Esau. And it ate away at his very being. Rebecca comes into the picture again here. Now, we're not told here in this passage that Esau spoke these words to anyone. Uh, it says, behold, uh, no, let's go back up. Get my glass on, see where it says what. Yeah, the end of verse 41. The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother. It says he said that to himself. But he must have said it to himself out loud. Either that or Rebecca was pretty good at picking up the body language and everything else that was emanating out of her son Esau because she says, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. you know, did Esau tell it to someone who told it to Rebecca? Did he tell it to himself out loud and Rebecca overheard it? We, we aren't told here. All we know is that this was his plan. Rebecca discovered, about, discovered the plan and so she informs her brother. She has now another scheme. This lady is quick of wit and this lady is decisive of action. She doesn't hem and haw. She knows exactly what to do. Uh, in each situation, and, and she carries it out. 
she urges her son to flee to Rebekah's brother Laban's house, to Jacob's uncle in Haran. Where else could he go? Going to send him down into Egypt where he doesn't know anyone? Uh, send him out in the wilderness? Send him to family. After all, that's where she came from. And maybe while he's there, he would find a wife from amongst the family, and that would be a plus. As it turns out, of course, the plus is too many pluses. <laughs> he ends up with two wives and two concubines, which wasn't exactly what she had planned, certainly. Now, there's no record that Rebecca herself ever returned to Haran once she had been brought there by Abraham's servant to marry Isaac. But it doesn't say she didn't either. There are big gaps, as you'll notice in the, in the record here. It doesn't give us blow-by-blow blow account. But it just seems from the record that probably they didn't make the journey back to Paden Aram at any particular time. So she is going to send her son up there. How does she know she's sending her son to anybody who would receive him or that they even live there anymore? Well, certainly correspondence had gone back and forth from time to time. Now, obviously, they didn't have Jerusalem post or postal service or something uh, to uh, run mail back and forth, but caravans traveled back and forth through the area, and uh, that region was on one of the uh, routes of that area, and of course, Heron was, at a, was a major entrepot. So certainly, messages traveled back and forth, and so from time to time, she heard from her brother uh, concerning the family and he from her. So, she is going to send her, her son to Paden Aram. Now, this is no small undertaking. It's not like us today, taking our child down and putting the child on an airplane with an escort and sending that child to the East Coast with an escort, getting off the plane with an escort and being delivered to the people that child's supposed to go to. She is sending her son, apparently alone, possibly with others, but there's no reference to any others, to Paden Aram, which was 500 miles away. Not on a plane, possibly on camel, possibly on foot. Now, of course, she's not exactly sending a little kid away. Guy's 40. So, you know, probably he's old enough to take care of himself. But nevertheless, this is her beloved. Ever notice, some of you have noticed because you are mothers, that uh, it's hard sometimes to let go of your child, even if the child's an adult and, and married and has children and all this. I mean, you still have this this nurturing <laughs> uh, instinct. And uh, it was not an easy thing for her to do, to send her son away. But notice what she says, for a few days. <laughs> well, of course, she knew it would take a month to get there to start with and a month to get back, but so obviously you, you don't take that literally as half a dozen days or so. But it was to be a temporary measure. That is very clear. She says, stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides. She makes two mistakes here. First, she thinks that it's going to just be a short period of time. And secondly, she figures that Esau will forget it all. As he's out hunting, happy as a lark, he'll forget all, uh, all of his losses. And uh, she does not really read that situation here correctly at all. Was she thinking in terms of a few months? Maybe a year? I think so. She had no idea the depth of her son Esau's wrath. Oh, yes, he's likely to kill you now if he gets his chance, but he'll forget it in a few days. Not. 
We all are familiar with that passage in Ephesians, and of course it was written to believers, uh, but it's important for us to be reminded of it because we have this tendency to anger, most of us do, that's common to the human race. Ephesians 4.26, be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. See, What is the purpose of taking care of your anger right now? What is the purpose of not letting the sun go down? Is it because uh, the next day it'll be a different kind of anger or something? No, it's because if we go that length of time and into a new day with the anger still hanging over us, the devil has a foothold. The devil has a means by which he can get into our lives and begin to use that to tear down the work of God in our lives and in the lives of others. Esau nourished his anger. He fed off this anger, and he gave a great foothold to the, to the evil one. Why is it that this anger persisted, and why is it that this anger would be persistent through the, the, the race of Edom all the way until its destruction? Because it was a satanic fury. It was a fury engendered and fueled by the enemy. So the Edomites always hate, hated the people of Judah and sought to destroy them at any point. As I mentioned to you before, read the Old Testament in detail. Read about the Edomites. Were they ever friendly with Judah? Were they ever friendly with Israel? No. Every chance they got, they were at war. They struck against Judah or Israel. You constantly read about battles and, and alliances against Israel, and often Edom is one of the enemy. It was a satanic fury driven by the evil one. And this would be an undying flame that would be persistent through Esau's posterity. Rebekah thought he would forget, but he didn't. But she hoped. And then one day she'd send a servant up there and tell Jacob, you can come home now. Did she think he'd come home with a bride? Well, it doesn't say here. Of course, the, idea, the, the, the reason she used to Isaac why he should send his son was so that he would bring back a bride. Uh, she was afraid that she would lose both sons in one fell swoop. The one would be murdered and the other would be a murderer. And thus she would lose them both. They would be, one would be dead, the other would be totally alienated from her and Isaac. In order to get Isaac's permission for, the, for, the, uh, for Jacob to flee, she brought to him a secondary issue. Now, it was an important issue. A lot of times there are important issues, but they are really secondary to the point. She said, if Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these from the daughters of land, what good will my life be? In other words, send him up there so he can get a good wife like you got. <laughs> but was that her primary concern? Her primary concern was her son's safety. That was preeminent in her thinking. Of course, if, she, if he brought back a lovely wife from, from the family, that would be a, a great plus. But that was not... I mean, if he came back unmarried, that would have been fine with her as long as he came back. 
I don't think this conversation took place inside of Esau's hearing. He discovers about it later. Rachel pays really a great price. I mean, not Rachel, Rebecca pays a great price. She will never see her son again. He will go, but he will not come back for 21 years. And uh, she will be dead. So she will never see her son again. So she is bereaved of him anyway, really. And of Esau too, because Esau moves away. Not far, but nevertheless out of the immediate camp. And so tragedy. Tragedy comes because of lack of trust in the mighty hand of God to bring about his perfect will in his way. As we read last week, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and resist the devil and he will flee. God wants our humility and our faith. Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith, humility, oh, so little of it do we see today in our society. And yet that's what God wants because with that he's able to work his great miracles and his mighty purpose in our lives and in his church. May those be our goals. Well, next week we'll pick up with chapter 28, the flight of Jacob. Jacob.